Now, next, please join me in welcoming our next round of speakers for our diversity and inclusion session, where we'll talk about how we can be advocates and empower diverse individuals in the federal workforce. A warm welcome to our moderator, uh, Karen Pavlik, Pavlin, Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer at ServiceNow, and our panel of progressive leaders, including Tracy Demartini, Chief Human Capital Officer at GSA, Javier Inclan, Deputy Office Head, Office of Equity and Civil Rights at NSF, and Zina Dachi, Special Assistant to the Comptroller General for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at GAO. Welcome. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, Steve, for that wonderful introduction. And uh, again, I'm Karen Pavlin with ServiceNow. And I'm so thrilled to be here with my amazing panelists today. And I will tell you that uh, it seems like the theme, um, everyone is saying that this is the first time that they've been in a room with so many people and on stage <laughs> in, since 2020. Uh, since the pan uh, pandemic began. And honestly, everyone, I feel so great to be here. And um, I want to just kind of just tie into something that, uh, that Nick said earlier uh, that I thought was really funny. I um, have met a lot of people over the, the last year or so. And uh, the first thing they say to me when they meet me in person is, wow, I didn't know how tall you are. <laughs> and how tall are you? And um, I always say, you know, going back a um, long time ago, I say I'm 5'12". <laughs> and I say that because my mom said growing up, as a woman, don't say you're almost six feet. <laughs> so, uh, you know, really in the spirit of just uh, being who we are, and owning who you are, I'm now saying, well, you know, I'm just a little bit shy of six feet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I am sure I could speak for all of us here, but the last two years has certainly amplified the work and the passion that we've all been committed to for probably most of our careers. Um, and in really building um, DNI into our respective organizations' DNA, who we are, how our people are responding, that will ignite a culture of um, making people feel seen, heard, connected, and safe. Correct? So I know for me, it's brought to light just the, the, the fact that there's really no roadmap for this journey. And we are all, as they say, we're building this plane while we're flying it in, a, in the most agile way. And it's also really uh, important that these times rem remain a, a movement and not just a moment in time. Um, a little bit about me before we dive in, um, and I have my amazing fellow, fellow panelists introduce themselves. My background did not follow your typical DEI leader. Uh, I grew up in the world of technology. Um, I started my career over 20 years at Xerox right after grad school. And uh, when I was at Xerox, I held several leadership roles in digital transformation. And at the time when I was there, I led several of our global diversity um, councils, uh, several of our employee resource groups, and I also founded Women in Tech. 
Um, I then um, spent five years uh, at an amazing company called Accenture Firm, amazing five years there as a managing director. Uh, I was a client account leader in our financial services practice. And coincidentally, I worked with ServiceNow as my uh, go-to ecosystem partner. So I, I sold the platform. Uh, I was also the executive sponsor for the Northeast um, Inclusion and Diversity Marketing Unit. Um, however, the last years at Accenture, last year I stepped into the role as North America IND leader, which was profoundly emotional and purpose-driven calling for me. And we talked about this, the calling. Um, especially after a year of racial unrest, um, social unrest, and the pandemic that really caused so many of us, uh, forced us apart, both physically, both mentally, and uh, at a time where it was more important than ever to remain connected. So I just recently joined ServiceNow, <laughs> just six weeks ago, it's amazing. <laughs> And I couldn't be more excited to be a part of this incredible leadership team who truly believes in an inclusive culture that is steeped in the respect for DEI and understands the linkage of the business impact and innovation. So with that, I am super proud to be here. I'm super proud to be here alongside of my amazing panelists. I will turn over and uh, let uh, you introduce yourself. Well, thank yeah. you so much. I really appreciate it. It's so exciting to be back out uh, unmasked and, and circling around. Uh, my name is Tracy DiMartini. I'm the Chief Human Capital Officer for the General Services Administration. And unlike Karen, no one looks at me and says, my, you're much taller than I thought. <laughs> But they do say you're just as loud on Zoom as you are in person. Uh, I'm really proud to be here and excited to talk about what we're doing at GSA and throughout the entire government, along with my colleagues, um, especially Javier, who I get to see a lot on this circuit. Right, Javier. Thanks, Tracy. Uh, my name is Javier Inclan. I'm the deputy office head for the Office of Equity and Civil Rights at the National Science Foundation. Um, I did not land uh, on, in this position as part of my career journey. Uh, it was, and you know, at the risk of sounding hokey, it was, it was almost a calling. Um, I was at NSF for, for three and a half years. Uh, actually met Tracy for the first time when I was the acting division director for the human resources division at NSF. Um, I left during the pandemic in July of 2020 uh, to, uh, to an opportunity at the US Marshal Service, which I loved, what a great mission of the Marshal Service. And then in February of 21, uh, a wonderful boss named Rhonda Davis called me and said, hey, um, I think I'm gonna get approval to get a deputy in my office and I really want you to join us. And I said, well, Rhonda, that's great. I, I loved working with you when I was at NSF before and, and that's fabulous, but I don't really have a background in DNI or EEO or civil rights uh, or anything like that. So I don't wanna be a burden and she said, Javier, I'm not hiring you for your technical expertise in DNI or EEO or civil rights. It's more about organizational development, and we're looking to reorganize our office, and I really think you're the right person for the job. And I said, okay, well, that sounds great, but I'm not sure you have approval yet, so when you do, please give me a call. And a week to the day, she called me back and she said, you know what, Javier, not only do I have approval, but I talked to the director and said that you might be interested, 
and he said, when does Javier start? Um, so a little bit of pressure there. It was one of the few times in my career where I was 1,000% sure of what to do. It wasn't about leaving the Marshall Service. I, I love that agency. I love the mission, love the people I worked with. But this calling, this going back to NSF, which is my family, uh, and doing something new and something exciting uh, under an administration, quite frankly, that, that has put a, such a focus on equity, um, I just jumped at the opportunity and, and came back to NSF. So uh, I've been there almost a year now, uh, back to my second stint. Uh, they still kept me, so that's probably a good sign. Um, and, you know, really looking forward to the great work that we're going to do across the federal enterprise on DEIA. Great. Thank you so much, Javier. And Zina. Uh, thank you. Um, my name is Zina Merritt, and I am very privileged today to be in great company of such a diverse group of panelists here, as well as the diversity I see in the office. Um, all of us have a very diverse journey. My journey in particular, I have been with the Government Accountability Office, GAO, now for over three decades. And so I guess it, it stands up to its reputation of being a great place to work because I have definitely stayed there. But I started out too in a very different aspect. And when I started at GAO, I was one of the new hires that was brought in to help to meet a diversity quota at that time. Don't get me wrong, I was well qualified, but the opportunities were very limited for people of color. And so I had an opportunity to begin to make a difference when I started my career at GAO in the late 80s. And from that point onward, I discovered that it took everyone, it took all individuals in the organization to make a change. And there came my passion to make sure that I was not one among a hundred that came in at any point in time, but we began to grow, we began to learn from each other, and so from there I have continued. I was appointed in my position in November 2017, and it's a great place to be, and again, I hope that whatever we impart today, you will learn a lot from it. Like my other colleagues, I'm, I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I'm, I'm height challenged, so anyway. <laughs> we, we all have things, we all have challenges, but we, one key thing about all of us, we know how to overcome them. And I hope today, whatever we get to share with you will also help you to overcome challenges that you may have faced in your career, because that's what it's about. Thank you so much, Zena. And I will tell you, you're not height challenged. <laughs> if you look at uh, diversity, there's only 1% of the world that's women that are over 5'11". So I'm, talk about diversity. <laughs> I get a lot of buckets. <laughs> but um, what I heard about our themes, I mean, it's, it's about um, calling, the calling, lived experiences, um, working on purpose, but our journeys have all been quite different, but it's just amazing that we've all kind of landed in, and, uh, in this amazing world of, of DNI, um, supporting culture for, for our organizations. Um, I'm gonna jump in and just throw a question out to, to all of us. So it's been nine months since President Biden released the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility Executive Order. It was in uh, June of 2021. And this EO holds all of us accountable to really look in the mirror and examine who we are 
and our own diversity practices and policies. Can you tell us and share the steps that your agency is taking to make sure that we are, there, we are implementing these goals that are outlined in the EO? So, Tracy, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I was, when you mentioned it was only nine months, I was thinking to myself, no wonder we're so tired at GSA. We've done so much work in a short amount of time um, that it feels like we have been working on this for far longer. And I think that is a testament to our leadership, both our political leadership and our career leadership at GSA, because we recognize we have to stay competitive, not just as a federal agency, but as an employer of choice across all sectors. And the only way we're going to do that is by embracing diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. Some of the things we have done specifically within GSA is we've stood up a diversity council, which has a diversity of experiences on it. It's not just the leaders sitting around the table. It's our entry-level staff that have been with us for fewer than three years. It's mid-career staff. It's senior-level staff. And we have them from all parts of the country, different regions. We have 11 of them at GSA, plus our headquarters in DC. Because in order to have a conversation about DEINA, you have to make sure the people sitting at the table are also diverse and inclusive, so you have representation of many ideas. We've also taken a look at our special emphasis programs and made sure they had a seat at the table and they felt welcome and safe. So one thing that we've done in the past few months is have a lot of our executive core actually stand up and say, I'm going to sponsor this group. And they're all fabulous people, but one of my favorites is my colleague Tom that is sponsoring the LGBTQ and A group, and he is just a force to be reckoned with, because not only is he helping them put on events such as when we celebrate Pride Month in June, but he goes above and beyond to help mentor staff and talk about what it means to be, identify as LGBT or Q in the workplace. And he's just really been a beacon, I think, of inspiration for staff that often felt excluded or that someone didn't quite understand um, how it was for them in the workplace. Another thing we have done is really collaborate very closely with our partners in civil rights. And anyone that here that works in an agency knows HR and civil rights are usually charged with compliance, right? People don't want to come talk to us because it usually means they're in trouble. Um, so I'm not used to having a lot of people that look as nice as you, you know, sitting before me. Um, and one of the things we've been able to do is talk about what we can do on the front end to help GSA really meet its diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. So we are undertaking a barrier analysis to see where we may have opportunities to improve. Because the last thing I really want to say before I pass it to my colleagues is we have to learn to not be afraid to talk about these issues. It's not about what we're not doing, it's what we need to do to get better. Mm -hmm. And I think once everyone understands that's the direction we're going in, um, you'll continue to see more passion generate around the, the ideals. People will feel less threatened. There's only one thing that I'm particularly passionate about. Can we all stop talking about the need to hire more people under 40 in government? That's cutting way too close to home. And I, always, I yes. used to be the Chico at the EEOC, and I remind everyone that our employees over 40 can file based on age discrimination. So we just need to be careful. And you can laugh. It's a joke. Because <laughs> the other thing I say is it'll be Generation X that saves the civil service. Because we're already disgruntled and angry. We just need to get in there and fix it all. <laughs> so, 
I love that, Tracy. I absolutely love that. And, you know, just the story that you told about your colleague. I mean, I'm a strong believer in people telling their, their stories yeah. and transparency. And I feel that when you are transparent as a leader, that it's contagious. Absolutely. So thanks. Javier. Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, last year was a whirlwind for me, going back to NSF and, and working on DEIA activities and equity, and, and June executive order came out. Uh, so one of the first things we did was, uh, as I mentioned before, in August we actually had our reorganization approved. Uh, and that reorganization uh, ultimately doubles the size of our office uh, from 12 to 24, uh, which is a big deal because historically uh, DEIA was really handled by one person full time and a smattering of other people uh, as part of EEO or civil rights or HR. Um, so that's exciting for us that we're able to you know, establish a structure where EEO and, and the disability program is in one branch and our external civil rights program is in our, another branch and then DEIA uh, and data analytics and other uh, functions of the office are in another branch. The other thing we did was we established a DEIA implementation team, uh, which is certainly a promising practice, uh, similar to GSA, not just of senior leaders, but really uh, employees from across NSF, uh, whether they're members of our employee resource groups or human resources, uh, our union partners, uh, and others uh, that really just have a passion for DEIA. And then the last thing I want to say about that is, and this is one of the things that we really feel passionate about, especially in an office where DNI or DEIA and, and EEO are co-located, is uh, the executive order says, and, and it's not verbatim, but pretty close to it, you know, seek agencies should seek opportunities to create the position of a chief diversity officer or chief diversity and inclusion officer distinct from EEO. Mm -hmm. And that's important, and the way we explain it, um, and people laugh because it's, it's kind of simplistic, but it really hits to the point, and Tracy mentioned the word compliance before. So in the EEO world, we go in, and if somebody files a complaint against a supervisor, uh, our office, and let's just say Javier goes in and talks to the supervisor and says, hey, you have a complaint against you, we're gonna do this, that, and the other thing. Here's a settlement agreement at the end of the day, and the supervisor says, am I compliant? Absolutely, supervisor, you are compliant. And then Javier leaves the office, goes to the revolving door, and comes back and says, hey, supervisor, let me talk to you about the things that you really should be doing to be better at your job. And the supervisor looks at me and says, Javier, but you just said I was compliant. I said, exactly. I said you were compliant. You were compliant. DEIA is about being above compliance, right? Trying to do proactive compliance, making sure that we talk to folks ahead of time, right? One of my favorite sayings um, that people laugh at me because it makes a lot of sense is, if you're gonna inv invite me to the crash, invite me to the takeoff, mm -hmm. right? And I am so proud, and I mentioned before that, that I used to be in HR for a few months. Um, quick side story, I, was, I started in December, uh, on December 9th of 2018, and if those of you that were involved, 11 days later, we had something called a, the beginning of a 35-day shutdown. Um, the guy that maybe wrote a PD or two in his life is now heading HR, um, so somebody played a, a pretty cruel trick on me. But um, besides all of the good things that happened and, and the great staff, I had the opportunity to build relationships. Some of those folks, I think, are sitting over there. Um, you know, but that really has helped me, and I, I believe it's maybe one of the reasons why Rhonda Davis asked me to come back is that relationship with HR doing DEIA work is so crucial. Right, Tracy? Mm -hmm. yep, right, Zena? Um, and you know, we have been lockstep in trying to develop 
um, a, a plan, right? We started with an assessment of, of what we we're trying to do, um, you know, for the plan and then uh, lockstep with HR of developing the plan. But to my point before, creating a chief diversity officer outside of EEO, NSF is thinking about um, seeking that opportunity to create that position. And that is really something that we really need to do, not only at NSF, but for those agencies that don't have it, you know, do it across the federal enterprise so that it could elevate the position to a certain point that you're inculcating the, the culture of DEIA into the culture of the agency. So then, you know, it is administration agnostic, it is leadership agnostic, we have chief human capital officers, we have chief financial officers, we have chief information officers. Yes, we should have chief diversity or chief diversity and inclusion officers that regardless of where it is, year after year, decade after decade, that is part of the senior leadership of an agency to make sure that everything is looked at through a DEIA lens going forward. Yeah. No, amazing, Javier. And what you said really just uh, reminds me of the saying, uh, diversity is, is, is a fact, but inclusion, equity, and accessibility is the act of what you're doing and you're being proactive. So thank you for that. Zena? Sure, thank you. I have a little bit a different story about um, the relationship between my organization and the executive order because unlike my colleagues who are part of the executive branch, I'm a part of the legislative branch so that executive orders are not applicable to us, but we pride ourselves as being a leading public service organization to the American people. So whenever there are opportunities for us to refine and to adopt good leading practices, such as those that are espoused in the executive order, we take that privilege to do a strategic pause, to look at where we've been and where we're going, and we baseline ourselves against those requirements as well. So for us, not being obliged to follow the requirements, I did myself personally, as our equivalent of our chief diversity officer, I took a look at the executive order and all of the requirements. I looked at where we were on the spectrum, and one of the things that the Office of Personnel Management put out was what they called a maturity model, um, so that all agencies can kind of baseline themselves to see where they are on that maturity model, moving towards diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. The other good news about this is, I think for once, I've been with the government, like I said, for a long time, this is one space I think that has brought all of us closer together. It's provided that necessary bridge that I think around a common effort in which we actually sit down and talk to each other on a level playing field. And we really have been trying to help each other and guide each other. When I self-reflect and look at what my agency has done, and as well as what a number of other agencies have done, this is nothing new. What we're being asked to do is kind of civility in the workplace in a way. It's recognizing that each individual that we employ are different. They have different talents, they have different skills, they have different abilities, but it's where are we going in the future and how are we gonna galvanize those talents and move forward. So for us, um, I pride myself in looking at that our journey started very early. We actually were one of the first agencies to actually have an EEO program, like Javier said. So you can't disconnect um, the EEO efforts from the DEI efforts. 
but what you can do is there needs to be some separation so that the work that has to be done in the DEI space can be done so without worrying about, as Javier said, um, some type of, if you're the arbitrator of a grievance, then you don't necessarily want to put yourself um, in that space of having to arbitrate as well as to lead the programming of the DEI efforts. So for me, I report directly to the head of my agency, which is the Comptroller General, and we've had that structure actually since 2009. My position is not a new one. My agency recognized very early before an EO came out the necessity of having diversity, equity, inclusion. We also had instituted training um, going far back, which is more than just compliance training. And so I think um, we really have to have a different mindset about what is effective DE&I training. It's not what some have projected it to be. Actually, it's making us be better people, creating greater awareness about acceptability of individuals in the workplace. And so we want to make sure that we continue that journey of uh, great training efforts in this space. We've continued to do that. I've also created a multi-year strategic plan. So when I looked at that strategic plan and I looked at the strategic framework that the Office of Personnel has put out, we're very much aligned with that. Uh, we also added equity as well as accessibility as key pillars in our efforts to guide our efforts. Um, and we're finding that agencies are in a different place, but I think everyone now is catching up. So it's been a great opportunity, and I am so happy that this forum is happening today with this particular topic for us to embrace it and to encourage others. And really, because there's always, skeptic there's always skepticism about what DE&I is and what those efforts are. But I hope that after today's session, if you were a skeptic of it, after we talked about some of the results that we've had, I hope that we can continue to get buy-in as why it is important to all. And as studies have shown, it really does contribute to high-performing institutions. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Zena, and, and all of everybody for just blazing the trails. Um, I'm going to ask uh, just a quick, if we can just keep our our uh, answers to about a minute <laughs> because we're just, so Tracy, I want to start with you. You know, we have, you have had a lot of experience in government and nonprofit HR efforts. Uh, you know, a big factor is knowing which areas in DE&I to focus on. Um, how are you using your background knowledge, data analytics, um, to effectively target opportunities to excel at mm -hmm. uh, GSA? including talent acquisition, et cetera? Great question. So it starts at the beginning before you even have a job on the street, giving everyone the understanding of what you are, you're available, what the agency does to get them interested in. And then it's about recruiting the most talented and diverse group of applicants so we have choice. And at GSA, we really are trying to do that through our capabilities on LinkedIn, Obviously, everyone here is familiar with USA Jobs. That is the mechanism to get your application in, but that doesn't mean we stop there. We should be making contacts with our HBCU partners, with all the professional organizations across the country for any discipline um, to make sure we're getting our word out about our opportunities. And then once folks are in the, in the seats and they're part of the federal family, making sure that not everyone gets the same, um, everyone has the same cookie cutter approach, it, meaning 
not everyone is going to get a promotion. What we are responsible for is making sure everyone has the opportunity to fairly compete for those promotions and that training and the things that will help people advance their careers are given, those opportunities are given to everyone. Because equity, again, it's not about making sure everyone gets the same exact treatment. It's about making sure everyone has the opportunity to take advantage of everything that is before them. And there's something important that both um, Zena and Javier said that I really wanna just emphasize before um, they get to speak, is this is not going away. One of the great things about the federal government, those of you that are in the civil service, understand that we are used to implementing executive orders. DEIA never went away under the prior administration. May have gone underground, never went away. But now we have an opportunity to really continue to bake it into our practices to make sure it outlasts any administration. It's here because it means something and it's for the benefit of the civil service to make sure that we represent the entire United States of America and the people we serve. Thank you so much. Yes, it is absolutely about just providing that equitable experience for everyone. So Javier, let's uh, move on to you. You've had several roles, um, and now you are Deputy uh, Head of um, Diversity and Civil Rights. What differences have you seen um, in your organization last year, and how are you engaging the workforce as they move forward with, their, uh, with your DEI work efforts? Thanks, Karen. Um, you know, I mentioned the reorganization before, which was really a step forward, um, you know, to try to elevate uh, the DEIA program. Uh, two things specific come to mind. Uh, one of them is that we recently uh, detailed into our office uh, five colleagues from across NSF, two of which are from, from HRM, uh, to serve as special emphasis portfolio strategists. Um, this is the first time that we're actually having individuals looking at different populations to analyze barrier analysis truly and deeply, working with our employee resource groups uh, to make sure that uh, the, our workforce data is what it should be, uh, what conflicts uh, there may exist, uh, what barriers are, are either perceived or real based on people's experiences. So I think that's really a step forward in the right direction and a change that I've seen uh, over the last several years. Another thing I wanted to mention is also the, uh, I mentioned before, the unbelievable relationship that our office has uh, with our chief human capital officer, Wanzi Gardner, uh, our division director for HR, Bill Maleska, and Nate Wells, who's his deputy, uh, Earl Andrews, a branch chief for staffing classification, uh, all the folks across HRM. We all have a passion for DEIA, regardless of what our titles are, what office we work in, and I think that has permeated across the workforce. Uh, we actually, in preparation for our strategic plan, um, had design thinking sessions, facilitated discussions uh, with stakeholders from across NSF, uh, focus groups, in-depth interviews, um, really listening to uh, NSF personnel, getting what their concerns may be. Again, uh, their perception is their reality, and we have to take that into consideration. And we've already seen a lot of fruits uh, of that uh, discussion. For example, uh, and I want to give Earl and, and the folks in HR a lot of credit, just a couple of weeks ago they announced that we are no longer requiring supervisor approval for employees to apply for a detail. Now that sounds like a no-brainer, but that was not the past practice at NSF. Now we only require a supervisor to 
um, get into the, you know, uh, the approval for uh, once somebody gets accepted. And that is, just, in and of itself, is the elimination of a barrier. Some folks just don't have that relationship with their supervisor to ask to go on detail. They feel that they're, uh, they're being held back. They don't want to be retaliated against. I'm not saying that, that's, uh, that that permeates across the agency, but we have heard uh, from employees that that has been their experience. And I think that is one absolute step forward uh, in listening to our workforce and taking action on some of those things uh, that their workforce really wants to see in order to help them in their careers and their professional yeah. development. Thank you so much, Javier. And, and Zina, I know, first of all, we could go on talking for hours here. But um, if you could just maybe in the last minute just share, you're setting the tone. How are you continuing to set the tone? Um, and then we'll sure. just, thanks. Thank you. Um, so most of you are probably most familiar with um, GAO as being the congressional watchdog. Many of you hate to see someone from GAO show up in your presence. But <laughs> um, there's a different side. And if we are going to hold others accountable for, and be, for the stewardship of government resources, we also have to be a model organization when it comes to those things that we are assessing. Um, for example, we have mandates and requests from Congress currently to examine the implementation of Executive Order 14035 and what federal agencies are doing in relationship to recruitment, um, retention efforts, as well as how agencies are structured to implement Executive Order 14035, as well as um, identifying leading practices that can be leveraged across government. But before we can shine a light on what others are doing, we are very inward focused. So I'm proud to say that my agency has a stellar reputation when it's come to DE&I. As a matter of fact, we have for nine consecutive years um, been ranked by the Partnership for Public Service as um, number one agency amongst mid-sized agencies for our support for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I just want to say to you that really uh, in my role, I have been a partner with our other federal, state, and local institutions to talk about the challenges and issues. And I continue to be in that role and want to continue to serve. Um, and that's one way that I serve the American public in my position as being a leader in this space and trying to help others as you overcome challenges. And I'm frequently interacting with um, agencies at the federal, state, and local levels. And so if I have an opportunity, reach out to me. I am not that GAO that most are afraid of. <laughs> uh, and there to actually be a helping hand in this journey on DE&I. Thank you so much. And as I said, we could go on for another couple of hours. But I do want to take the opportunity to thank you all um, for the work that you do, for the passion that you bring, and uh, for being here with us today. So thank you.